Morning. Morning, everyone. So now we're ready for our second panel, Theoretical Museology and Ethics. And it will be moderated by Michelle Rivet. She's a lawyer, museologist, member of the Quebec Bar, and visiting professor at the University of Sherbrooke. Michelle is the vice chair and on the board of trustees at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And she is also a board member of both ICAFOM and ICOM Canada. Thank you, Michelle, for moderating. Now, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I'll start again. <laughs> Sorry for the delay. So, uh, good morning. Good afternoon for some of you. I want first yes. to tell you how pleased I am to chair this panel. I would like to particularly thank Susie and Robert, to whom we owe the realization of this symposium, and of course, our annual meeting this afternoon. Je voudrais tout d'abord vous dire tout le plaisir que j'ai à être la modératrice de ce panel. Je tiens à remercier tout particulièrement Suzy et Robert, à qui nous devons la réalisation de ces journées. Buenos dias, buenas tardes. En primer lugar, me gustaría decirles et placer que tengo de ser el moderador de este panel et agradecer en particulier à Suzy et Robert we will, this, uh, this, in this panel, discuss, uh, I would suggest, a very interesting question, which is dealing with theoretical museology and ethics. And I think that we are very privileged to have the two speakers that we're going to listen to. Uh, we will start first with Alice. Alice, I may not pronounce your family name correctly, I'm sorry. Sadang, Sadangai, or, okay, and your name is also Kiowa Tuomo Odlam. So Alice is a project coordinator for the American Indian Language Development Institute at the University of Arizona, former assistant curator for the Native American Relations, Arizona State Museum and Training Coordinator, National Museum of the, of the American Indian, Smithsonian Institute. We have to say that Alice, and I will try to be very brief, was the first Native American director of the American Indian Museum Study Program and the Smithsonian, where she led the foundation for the current training opportunities available at the National Museum of the American Indian. Over the years, even if she's very young, she got many prizes. She received a Director's Chairs Award from the Western Museum Association for a contribution to museum field at national level. Alice was also the first recipient of a leadership award given by Association of Tribal Archives. I think I will stop there, but I can continue. Alice, you have a very, very impressive resume. Congratulations. So this morning, Alice will address us on, and I'm just quoting the title of her presentation, Connectedness and Relationship Foundation of Indigenous Ethics within the tribal museum context. Thank you. So Alice, we're very pleased to listen to you. Alice Adangiyakam. Koima Aida. Nata Koidu. Nata Tana Atamda. Good morning. My name is Alice Sadangi. I'm Kaiwa and Tana Atam. And I'm coming to you this morning from Tucson, Arizona, or Chukshon, uh, Arizona which is uh, located on the ancestral homelands of the Tohono O'odham, uh, which was my mother's people. Uh, thank you to all of the organizers of this conference and for all the work that you put into it for uh, allowing us to come together and continue to, to talk and connect, um, even in this time of pandemic. And I did want to just acknowledge the pandemic that we're in, and I know that all of our countries, the whole world has been affected, and I, uh, my heart goes out to those of you who have personally have had losses or situations, and, and really there's, just, there's no one who hasn't been touched by this. 
and um, I'm glad that in the midst of it, we're able to continue to come together and connect. So. Alice, we're not able to see you right now. We'd love to see your beautiful face. But you could Thank hear me. You. <laughs> we can see you now. Wonderful. Okay. And you did hear me earlier, right? We did. We did. Okay. Very clearly. All right. Good. All right. Well, I will uh, begin with my presentation. The discussion of ethics within the tribal museum context requires an acknowledgement that codes of ethics, often used in many professional associations, are based on Western perceptions and culture. That is not to discount tribal museums that have adopted their own version of ethics for their own use, nor does it diminish some of the statements or guiding principles that tribes have chosen to use on their tribal ID cards, for example, that state that being a tribal member includes remembering principles, such as reciprocity and respect. In this paper, I will attempt to share with the larger museum community what comprises indigenous ethics and what they might look like in regards to interactions with tribal representatives and mainstream museums. I will also offer an example of how tribes may choose to apply their version of indigenous ethics to their own museums and cultural programs. My hope is that with an increased awareness of what is at the heart of indigenous ethics, mainstream museums may be better equipped to honor those ethical expressions when they work with tribal researchers, curators, and collaborators. It is also my hope that tribal museums will continue to fully embrace their indigenous ethical foundations to create truly unique cultural institutions. I must also begin by acknowledging the contradictory nature of the tribal museum in relation to the topic of ethics. The discussion of ethics within the tribal museum context at first glance appears relative because just like other museum colleagues, Tribal museum professionals strive to adhere to the best practices of the industry. Museum ethics set the standard for operations and conduct. But on closer examination, the idea of ethics, or in this case, indigenous ethics, defy codification, and yet codes and taxonomies permeate the museum profession and undergirds its very structure and foundation. Indeed, the notion of a tribal museum often runs counter to native or tribal concepts of cultural vitality and legacy. To quote from the call for proposals for this conference, the practice and rationale of theoretical museology, especially regarding tribal nations in the United States, developed from a colonial perspective. Slavery, the genocide of indigenous Americans, expansionism, and the reverence for the founding fathers contributed to the territorial way that museums have functioned. Just as, just as mainstream museums continue to reflect aspects of its colonial history and structure and purpose, the concept of ethics also reflect its Western perspective. Indigenous ethics then, for the purposes of this discussion, reflects cultural perspectives and values that are distinctly non-Western. Despite the colonial legacy, tribal museums continue to flourish in the United States and many of them are incorporating indigenous ethics in subtle yet powerful ways that illuminate new practices uniquely indigenous in nature. For this paper, I have chosen to define indigenous ethics to be the knowledge, abilities, or practices that establish oneself as a human being in a relational world. This definition is not uncommon in native communities, especially among those who are knowledgeable about their tribes, religious, and cultural practices. These cultural practices are not overtly defined, but they reflect stages of knowledge and define one's relationship to the land, other tribal members, family, and to self. Ultimately, the goal of applying learned practices will allow for a person to live cooperatively within and among the natural world and all its elements. References to lived experience and practices have been called traditional indigenous knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge. Both names are generally viewed by native people as being synonymous as they refer to the knowledge and application of cultural practice that has been informed by generational and spiritual transfer. Native scholars such as Greg Kahete, Tewa, and the late Oscar Kwagali Yupiak further introduced traditional indigenous knowledge to academia. Their work demonstrated that traditional knowledge encompassing ecology and biology as well as education systems 
can provide indigenous perspectives that validate and establish what has historically been categorized as folklore or legend in the Western tradition. Traditional indigenous knowledge has contributed to studies on climate change, food sovereignty, ecological conservation, as well as language and cultural revitalization. Traditional indigenous knowledge has the potential to provide innovative solutions and to inform policy. Remembering and applying ancestral knowledge for Native people serves as a connection to a continuum and inspires us, in some cases, to relearn parts of ourselves that have been misaligned by generations of forced and later assimilated engagement in Western society. In addition to Kehete and Coagulli, Indigenous scholars continue to change the dynamic of research regarding traditional Indigenous knowledge. One of the foremost, one of the most foremost is Maori scholar Linda Tuhuwini-Smith, whose book, Decolonizing Methodologies, Research in Indigenous Peoples, encourages Indigenous researchers to disengage from Western standards of research and to reclaim Indigenous ways of knowing to serve as their research framework. Traditional indigenous knowledge can also be viewed as embodied knowledge. Native Hawaiian scholar Dr. Wendy Peters asserts that the embodiment of indigenous knowledge is derived from the past, present, and future experiences of the collective and is existential to the very being of the individual. Indigenous ethics then surpasses the ethical guidelines used in Western institutions. Laying a foundation for life in relation to the world around us including humans, animals, plants, insects, celestial and elemental life forms provide guidance that is instructional rather than prohibitive in nature. Native American tribes in the United States have managed to retain aspects of indigenous ethics or traditional indigenous knowledge in spite of being immersed in a society where mores are contradictory to indigenous ways of thinking and being. It is a fact to be celebrated, and it is a testament to the survival and resiliency of Native people. Traditional Indigenous knowledge forms worldview, cultural practice, and social behavior. It can manifest in subtle ways, and it continues to be expressed not only in ceremony and ritual, but it is also the basis for understanding abstract concepts such as time, place, and the interactive present. The application of traditional indigenous knowledge as it relates to the museum field came into focus with the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act by the United States Congress in 1990. The legislation, commonly referred to as NAGPRA, requires all museums that receive any type of federal funding to provide inventories and summaries of Native American human remains, funerary objects, and sacred objects and objects of cultural patrimony to tribes in order to facilitate the return of such items back to tribal nations. NAGPRA compliance magnified, by necessity, the contrasting worldviews of Native American tribes and the professional standards and ethics of the museum field and its related disciplines of archaeology and anthropology. Many tribes relied on indigenous ethics to help them construct reburial practices for the return of human remains under NAGPRA a daunting and traumatic task as tribes did not have practices for reburying an individual. Indigenous ethics continues to inform behaviors when current discoveries of ancestral remains that may be disturbed are regarded with the same amount of sentiment and care as one would have for the death of a contemporary individual. Indigenous ethics are not bound by linear time, rather they transcend time which makes it possible for Native communities to recognize and honor relatives that are many, many generations removed. Linear time can also dissolve when referring to landscape. I refer to an example that was shared with me regarding a conversation between a grandmother and her grandson. The grandmother was telling her grandson that he was a Native American, and she told him the name of his tribe using their Native language. The name of this particular tribe references a river. She also told her grandchild that the, that the river that their people are named after was running and full of water. The grandchild was incredulous upon hearing the river used to run and asked her, was I born then? She told him, we were all born then. 
She was sharing the ancestral knowledge and experience from thousands of years ago since the river allowed their people to settle and flourish. The statement, we were all born then, elegantly and simply collapses linear time and contemporaneously declares to the grandchild that the river is still flowing in the hearts and minds of their people. Nagpra also reintroduced to tribes sacred and ceremonial and objects of cultural patrimony that had not been part of a tribal community for many years. For those tribes whose cultural and traditional religious practices remained vital, applying the appropriate knowledge to aid in repatriation were clear. For many others, they had to trust in the ancestral knowledge they embodied. In the early days of Nagpra, museums were relatively unaware of the cultural and spiritual magnitude that repatriation held for tribes. Astute museum staff might have witnessed the application of indigenous ethics when collections were viewed and transfers were activated. Tribal expressions related to the return of sacred objects and human remains are as diverse and complex as the number of tribes there are in the United States. Having an awareness of indigenous ethics and how it guides behavior, especially related to cultural and religious practices, can assist mainstream museums in honoring how it is expressed by Native peoples. Over the 20 plus years of NAGPRA compliance, exchanges between museum curators and tribal cultural representatives, once fraught with anger, frustration, and sadness from both sides, has shifted to a more collaborative intellectual exchange due in part to engaging in consultation as required by the NAGPRA law. As a result, the validation of traditional indigenous knowledge throughout the museum field has been expressed in co-curation of exhibits, advisory boards, collection sharing, and other unique collaborations. Since the passage of NAGPRA, tribal researchers have primarily been focused on the eligible categories of museum collections for repatriation. However, museum collections as a source of cultural information have gained in importance for tribal communities. Access to cultural objects and archival information have increasingly been used to reinforce cultural identity by validating tribal memory of emergence, replication of cultural items, and revitalizing native languages, all of which are vital components of traditional indigenous knowledge. Access and use of museum collections by tribal researchers requires navigation of Western museum standards for collections management that often has to be balanced with the emotional and spiritual connections that are enacted and engaged when researchers come into contact with cultural objects. Regardless of whether an object is deemed sacred or sensitive, the ability to see up close cultural objects remains a highly energizing activity. Objects can evoke connections to home, ancestors, and place. Museum staff can offer restful spaces for tribal researchers should the need arise. By understanding the subtle complexities that tribal researchers face, when engaging with museum collections, non-tribal museum curators and other professionals will increase their ability to facilitate mutually beneficial collection-based research visits. Tribal museums are also accommodating their own researchers as they use local collections to enhance and strengthen traditional knowledge. I would like to briefly share one example of how a tribal museum located in central Arizona has used traditional knowledge, specifically the use of their native language, to further their goals of language revitalization. Indigenous ethics were used to guide the process and resulted in creating collection documentation that is unique to their tribal culture. The mission of the Hulagam Heritage Center is to ensure the cultures of the Akimaotham and Thibash and that of their ancestors will survive and flourish for present and future generations. The Hulagam Heritage Center is located on the Gila River Indian Community Reservation. Two distinct tribes reside on the reservation and the language documentation project I'm going to describe focused on the Akuma Otham. The Hulagam Heritage Center includes exhibition spaces, classroom space, collection storage, conservation lab, and archives. They also offer an education and outreach program as well as a language program. Most tribal language programs are often situated in their own department or are part of a larger tribal education department. In this case, the museum's language program does work cooperatively with the larger language program, 
but the majority of their language activity does center around their collections. This emphasis naturally encourages the use and documentation of culturally relevant language. And in this case, the language revolved around the tradition of basket making. Beginning in the 2000s, the museum began consultations with local basket weavers when they accessioned a collection of baskets that had been previously stored at another museum. The tradition of basket making in the community has seen a resurgence due in part to the museum's efforts to promote the skill by employing basket weavers on staff and regularly hosting basket making classes and other relevant activities. A concerted effort was made by museum staff to seek answers to the following. How can Akima-Otham language provide us with a deeper insight to our understanding of our basketry collections? And how can Akima-Otham language help guide our understanding and practices of caring for basketry collections? After a series of consultations with basket weavers, the museum staff were able to replace English words with native language to describe basket materials, features, structure, types, design, and conditions. Conceptual categories or values from the native language were used to guide museum practices. Cognition then was based on the language and animal and plant categories reflected how the tribe viewed their relationship to the plant and animal world as opposed to standard flora and fauna nomenclature. Language use is promoted now by collection staff and their work has resulted in a unique collections management database that is truly reflective of their traditional indigenous knowledge. This is just one example of how a tribal museum is using indigenous ethics or traditional indigenous knowledge to guide how best to document language within a museum setting. In closing, let me repeat that what I am calling indigenous ethics is grounded in epistemology and worldview. Each tribal culture will manifest indigenous ethics in different ways but in general, tribes share an intuitive knowledge that is rooted in using our life experiences to evolve into a fully human being living in and among all the life forms of the natural world. Can this be expressed in tribal museums? I believe that tribal museums, out of all the various different tribal institutions, can incorporate traditional knowledge principles into their work. It can be expressed in such subtle ways is how meetings are opened and conducted, how one greets visitors, how hospitality is extended. It can then be applied to museum practices, such as how collections are stored, how they are used and handled, how exhibit labels are written and used. In keeping within indigenous ethics, these practices do not have to be overt. It is enough that they are mindfully employed, reminding us to go back to trusting our native knowledge. Thank you for listening. Aho. Okay. Now, do I yes. start again? Yes. Okay. I'm so sorry. No. <laughs> I just want to. Okay, I just want to say first to congratulate uh, Alice. I think that the overview that she presents us is, is very broad, very interesting, and we, we, we can understand how indigenous ethics is, is so important, but we will come later to, to discuss that when in our uh, question uh, period time. Now I just want to give the floor to Marion Bertin. Marion Bertin, she's an ICOFOM board member and a very active ICOFOM board member, I have to say, uh, Marion, congratulations. She's also ICOM a French member. She's now a PhD student at the Ecole du Louvre and Université La Rochelle, and she's a fellow researcher at the Museum National Picasso Paris. So Marion Bertin, we will, uh, we will travel with her. We're going now in the Pacific with, with Marion, and the title of her presentation is Challenging Museum and Collections toward an indigenous ethics in the Pacific Island. So Marion, it's for you now. Um, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, everyone. I would like to firstly to, to thank Susie and Rob and all the organizers for their great job on this very great symposium. I am very thankful and happy to be virtually with you today. Um, to present uh, another geographic uh, area 
uh, with a very specific methodology to provide other examples of effects. In Pacific regions, museums have been created since colonization and commercial expansion during the 19th century. The first one was established in Victoria, in Australia, in 1854. Colonial museums opened also in Wellington, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in 1864, Noumea, in New Caledonia, in the beginning of the 20th century, in Papete, in Tahiti, also at the beginning of the 20th century, just to, to give you some examples of, of such museums. Those museums were intended as economic tools for the colonial state with the aim to show the natural resources that could be exploited within the colonies. A few objects from the indigenous local communities were also displayed with a more illustrative role. Those objects could be both daily or ritual for both could be both for daily or ritual uses and were acquired through different kinds of collections, be they exchanges, gifts, trade, robes of faith, that whose origins are sometimes very difficult to pinpoint today. The native communities themselves did not enter the museum, and museum audiences mainly consisted of expatriates and colonizers. Since the, the, the 70s, indigenous communities living in Pacific Islands have been fighting more and more to be heard and recognized, both politically and culturally. Their protests are also concerned with objects preserved and displayed in those museums. In the following decade, in the 80s, some fruitful dialogues were created between museums and indigenous communities and organizations especially in Aotearoa, New Zealand, New Caledonia, Australia, and Vanuatu. Thanks to these collaborations and partnerships, new voices emerged from the Pacific Islands with indigenous scholars or professionals, as well as community leaders who contributed to rethink museums, local, local museum's ethics. Today, my paper Focus, focuses on three different ideas that are key tools to use when thinking about the roles of museums and collections in some archipelago, archipelagos in the Pacific. These three notions are the Manatanga, which is used in Aotearoa in New, in New Zealand, the objects as ambassadors, a comparison employed to refer to Kanak objects in New Caledonia and abroad, and the custom, a word which refers to the knowledge and intangible practices around the object with a focus on Vanuatu. These ideas are used as tools to deal with the collections within the, this island in order to curate, preserve, and exhibit indigenous objects. They are, they are also important for the objects preserved in museums overseas and they build, can build relationships between collections. I will also briefly present each archipelago to, give, to get better understanding of the situation of museums and indigenous objects in each of them. The last point I would like to raise just before starting my presentation in more detail is that the author and the, the people that I will quote and mention did not consider themselves as museologists per se, but as curators, art historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, or indigenous leaders. It is a key feature to understand when reviewing their thoughts as they are more practical than theoretical. Aotearoa, uh, New Zealand, is a Polynesian archipelago which was colonized by the United Kingdom in the 19th century and is now part of the Commonwealth. It is ruled by the Treaty of Wetangi, 
which was taken in 1840 by representative of the British crown and Maori chiefs. The text of the treaty is bilingual, but the translation in Maori language contains inaccuracies when compared to the English version. Lands were thus looted by the British, by the British crown, whereas the text was uh, intended as to protect and to give some power to to let some power to the to the Maori tribes. During the 1980, the 1980s, 1970s, sorry, Maori tribes conducted important protests and marches over the islands to recover rights on their former lands. Slowly, Aotearoa, New Zealand, became a country with two official cultures recognized as equals. Maori tribes also gained more political representation with, for instance, the constitution of the Wetangi Tribunal, with, with, uh, which has the aim to, to work on the, this, uh, to, to recover uh, the, the former Maori land. An important ex exhibition was organized in the 80s called Te Maori. The soaring exhibition was first took place in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York before three stops in the USA and four other ones in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Then it was the first one to focus on Maori objects as work of, as works of art with the presentation of those objects with, from a wide, a wide range of time. It was also the first one to engage Maori representatives and to let them speak for themselves about their cultures and their objects, especially their taonga. Taonga refers to the most valuable and treasured possessions for Maori families such as, that were kept and transmitted from one generation to another. They can be objects, such as ornaments in Nefret, uh, as uh, in the, the, the left images, as well as birds, feathers, for example. The Taongar serve also as links with ancestors and the genealogy for, for one's family. Many of them are now part of museum collections, and as such, they have lost their disconnection. In a sense, the Maori exhibition was the first time that the Manatonga was applied. Following, this is one image of the, the exhibition in New Zealand. Follow, following Arapata Kiwai, who is Maori co-leader in the National Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongariva, and Philip Schorsch, uh, a scholar of um, specialized in Maori, um, Maori cultures. Manatonga can be defined as an indigenous principle that allows museums to develop a structured process of engagement with its communities by recognizing the living relationships between Tonga and their communities of origin. Each step of the Te Maori exhibition was opened with a Maori ceremony composed by a procession, dances, and chants. The steps in Aotearoa, New Zealand, were of particular importance as they temporarily brought back Tonga in the archipelago. Tonga we've created with respect for Maori considerations to recognize to reconnect them with the Ma Matau Ranga, the Maori knowledge and worldview and Fakapapa, the genealogy. In practice, it means that Taonga were accompanied by Maori keeper, keepers during the, the exhibition tour in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which provided chants and prayers, and put fresh leaves aside of the object to help, to help them to stay warm. It also means that Taonga were recognized as living entities and not only as objects. After the exhibition, the project of rebuilding the National Museum of New Zealand contributed to extending these practices 
um, uh, in, with a more wide view. This museum was opened in, 18, in 1988 as it grew its current name, the National Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongariva. Te Papa Tongariva means the, the House of Treasures. In this museum, and in many other ones over the archipelago, a Maori staff is now employed to provide spiritual and physical care of the, uh, of the Tonga. In some museums, two curators are employed to provide both sides of this curating job. Maori tribes say the owners of Tonga and can be consulted to get closer with their idea and their preferences toward their Tonga. Thus, museum are thought as kaitiaki, the guardians of the Tonga on behalf of the Maori tribes, which is quite linked with uh, the idea of stewardship in the USA toward the Native American tribes. The second idea I would like to share concerns Kanak objects in New Caledonia. This archipelago was colonized in, by France in 1853, and it is still a French territory nowadays. Colonization was very violent and created tensions as well as important gaps between the different communities that live in, living there. Those communities can be French descent and expatriates, Kanak tribes and communities from the other states that were part of the French colonial empire, such as French Polynesia, Cambodia, or Thailand. Since the 1970s, Kanak tribes have asked for political recognition and more autonomy. For Jean-Marie Chibaou, one of the main Kanak thinker, thinker and leader of this time, Kanak culture and objects were important tools for this recognition. After a period of huge tension in the 80s, two treaties were signed in, in 1988 and 1998, which created a very specific political status to New Caledonia, with more implications for connect tribes within the government. Answering Chibao's demand and concern, the French ethnologist Roger Boulet conducted a survey of the Kanak objects preserved in French and European museums. Three current questions were essential for Chibaou. Where are they? How are they? What did it say about it? A very ambitious project followed and was called the Inventory of the, of the Kanak Scattered Heritage, l'inventaire du patrimoine Kanak dispersé in French. The first results of the survey were presented in Noumea in 1990 during the exhibition the de Jade de Nac, which means of Nefrit and Mother of Mother of Pearl, which was co-curated by, by Roger Boulet and Emmanuel Casarerou, the first Canac to become curator and director of the Museum of New Caledonia. This exhibition gathered more than and to 250 Kanak objects together from European museums and returned them in New Caledonia for the first time since they left the island. Before the exhibition, Emmanuel Casarerou and Isen Jung traveled in the whole archipelago to meet Kanak chiefs and explained them the intentions of the exhibition, especially the fact that the objects will not stay in the, in the archipelago at the end. An important issue, concern, uh, issue of concern is the ways this, the objects were acquired in the past and how they had left New Caledonia. Exchanges are particularly important in Kanak tribes and are accompanied with words and speeches. Those words are essential to understand why and how an object is exchanged. In the case of the objects scattered in museums, Words remain more frequently unknown, which is an important matter. Thus, the objects were not asked for repatriation. An, an opening of the exhibition 
was organized with the Kanak the ship. At this occasion, Octave Tonya, then at the head of the state agency in charge of Kanak cultures and a Kanak leader, expressed in a, in a speech that the objects could be considered as ambassadors to be a representative of the Kanak tribes and culture around the world. It is important to, to mention that Kanak culture was at this time almost unknown outside the territory. The objects could, were thus intended to get more visibility abroad outside the island. This opening uh, customary ceremony had to build a more a new relationship between Kanak Kanak communities and the object. The exhibition in itself made clear that a relationship was still felt by Kanak people with the object made by, made by their ancestors in spite of the distance and break with those objects and sometimes in spite of their original ignorance of, their, of this object. After the exhibition, the objects were considered to be ambassadors of the Kanak communities in the in the museums where they are now present. In 1998, the opening of the Jean-Marie Chibaou Cultural Center, still in Numea, bearing the name of the Kanak leader, further helped to advance this cause. In the building, a room was dedicated to the object as ambassador to greet the subject and exhibit them. Australian, French, German, and Swiss museums accepted to lend a few objects to New Caledonia, where were exhibited in the cultural center for three or four years before they came back to those museums. Two examples of those objects. Thus, the object could be re revitalized, so the source in the French, uh, the French version. To quote Emmanuel Casarero, these speculations help to recognize adopting museums and Kanak tribes as equal for the management of objects, as well as a moral and cultural right on the, the object for Kanak tribes. This idea echoes with the political statement in New Caledonia about the common destiny, Desmacoma in French, while few votes of the self-governing are organized in the archipelago, the next one will take place in, uh, in the beginning of October. The program of speculations was stopped in uh, 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 I forget the, the, the year, uh, just in, uh, after an important temporary exhibition of Kanak materials before, because of logistic and financial matters. In May 2020, when Emmanuel Casarigou was hired to add the Cabernet Jacques Chirac Museum in Paris, he again expressed his idea on the importance of speculation and a shared responsibility to build up around the collections acquired in colonial context while he encouraged also to further research on the provenance, the, the object provenance. Thus, over objects as ambassadors originated from over areas might disappear in the next few years. My first focus concerns Vanuatu, an archipelago of more than 80 islands which was a French and British condominium until 1980, when it becomes independent and a republic. The double law influenced the administration of the islands inevitably, as French and United Kingdom intervene in varying degrees. Some local communities remained powerful and ruled mostly by their own, especially in the northern island of the archipelago. Protests and calls for cultural recognition happened since the, the 70s, in addition to a desire for political autonomy and sovereignty. In this struggle, Melanesian ways of thinking and living started to appear as political tools for indigenous community, 
which were to become the Nivanuetu. The word custom, which comes from English word customs, customs, referred to this practice. This custom, uh, as intended and understood as traditional, tradi traditional, which means that it is pre-colonial pre -colonial and rejects Western modernism and capitalism. In fact, so-called traditional practices are mixed with over Western ones, Christianity first and foremost. The concept also acts as an umbrella and tries to diminish differences between the local communities to build cultural unity and in search of the political unity. The concept of custom is common to other Melanesian islands such as Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, or New Caledonia. Within the islands, where the concept is used and gets political, social, and ritual importance, I chose to focus on the Vanuatu Cultural Center and National Museum, Vanuatu Cultural Center in Bishlama, the national language, as I know it well, and it was also one of the most dynamic museum and cultural institutions in the Pacific. Our first museum opened during the colonial era in the, in the 50s in Parvilla, the, the capital city. In the mid 70s, the English ethnologist Kirk Hoffman became curator and director at the, of the institution. At this time, Nivanuatu did not recognize themselves in the objects exhibited in the museum, which, was seen, which were seen as that object because of their distance with the community. Kekhoffman and the museum staff studied the oral traditional project, an important program of field workers to register and preserve indigenous intangible heritage and the knowledge in Vanuatu. The field workers are volunteers who are originated from and living in different islands of the archipelago they did self-ethnography within their, their communities and their families to collect knowledge about ceremonies, objects, etc. The project started with a focus on male knowledge, but was a, a subsection with, was added for women with the statement that women have custom too. Those two programs continue to this day. The collected information well, uh, were, uh, was then preserved in the Vanuatu Cultural Center, which can be considered as a bank of custom on behalf of the communities, to quote Heidi Gesmar, who conducted a doctoral uh, fieldwork with, about the women's project. The data remains the property of the communities where they were collected. The most sacred one, can only can only be accessed by the the community members. The curatorial staff of the Vanuatu Cultural Center is also custom trained, and in all, in order to get knowledge about this subject, these important issues of the communities, they really act as gatekeepers. The importance of intangible heritage is also clear through the exhibition of the museum. The objects that are displayed are not only testimonies of the material heritage. They can be used if a, communi a community requires it. Moreover, an agreement from traditional owners is needed for every object displayed. As Alice Bernadac pointed out in an article that will be soon published in La Lettre de l'Ocime, a French journal, the most important space in the permanent exhibition, uh, in the permanent exhibition room, is the one dedicated to sand rain, the sand drawing in English, which is part of the UNESCO Intangible Heritage List. In this space, Edgar Inge, who is also the museum guide, shows it is practice to visitors. It is also a welcoming space with benches where people can meet and discuss with or without a visit of the space. 
This institution is far more than a museum. It is a cultural center which, which is part of its name. Just to briefly conclude and summarize, the three concepts I presented are important tools to engage communities and build new relationships between museums and indigenous communities. They contributed to reframe professional practices towards an indigenous ethics and kind of museology specific to this Pacific Islands. I really thank you for your attention and I hope I contributed to the reflections on, of, about the, the, the ethics and, of, and museology to get closer and more accurate to tribal contexts in the USA and all over the world. So, do you hear me now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay. <laughs> wow, what fantastic presentation we just got. Uh, it will be absolutely impossible to, to synthesize them because they are so complex and complete. Well, Marion, thank you so much for your presentation about the role and the importance of objects the objects as ambassadors, and uh, the, the, the concept of cost, custom, the knowledge and intangible practices around objects. Of course, Manatanga too in New Zealand at the Te Papa Tangarea Museum. I cannot restrain myself to say that I was privileged to spend three weeks at that museum in, uh, a few years ago, four years, five years ago. And uh, as you explained it very correctly, the Manatwanga is so powerful, is really uh, everywhere now in the museum, much more than object for the Maori, but really for the whole museum. So really it was, it was very, very interesting. And of course, Alice, I, I, cannot, I cannot say so, so much about your paper because I, I would have to read to, 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 to read your paper again completely, though it was so powerful. So during, during your presentation, you gave us the fundamental goal of indigenous ethics. It is to become fully human, knowing one's relationship to land, family, village, and self. As you said, indigenous ethics fully realized can be the basis for tribes to transform their museum creating their own relevant cultural institutions. I was very, very impressed by, by, by the importance of tribal ethics uh, in, in, in many fields, as you give many examples, and the one with the language, I don't want to, to, to repeat it, but it was, it, was, it was really interesting. And also that, I will, I will just conclude my remarks about your very powerful presentation by saying that, yes, we are all born then. I think that the example you gave with the grandmother and the grandson was, was really very, very interesting. And of course, I'm so pleased that everything is registered. So we'll be able to listen to it again and to really fully understand. And of course, for me and maybe for all the participants who are with us today. So I understand it's now the questions and answer period of time. I don't know if the presenters, if Alice would like to comment about uh, Marion presentation or Marion about Alice, or if we go directly to the, to the should I say, the floor, the virtual Michelle? floor. Marion, do you want to say to Michelle, me? Can you oui? turn on your camera, please? Turn on your camera, you mean what by that? Could you, uh, we're, we cannot see you. You cannot no. see me. Oh, is it? Is it so important? <laughs> we're going to have a Q uh, session, so yes, we'd love to see your lovely face. Okay. Oh, please. Well, I, I think I'm not. I'm just doing worse thing when I'm trying to be to be seen. Uh, and Alice, sharing. I, I don't know my um, where. 
I don't know where I should go to. Well, I, it will be enough if you just listen to me, you know, <laughs> because I don't really know where to go to have the. You cannot. You cannot do that, Robert. Organize that. Um, I I can't start your webcam for you, but it's Sorry. it's okay either either way. Uh, there the webcam icon up at the top of the screen next to the green microphone is what you would click on for the um, for the video, but it's okay. Um, I just okay. wanted to remind everybody how okay. how Q and A will work here. I've reopened the chat box down at the bottom right corner of the screen, and so anybody in the audience is welcome to. Begin posting okay. questions or observations to the chat box down at the bottom right. I am also activating microphones for everybody in the audience. Um, and anybody is welcome to chime in over the microphone. I just, in order to make this a bit more orderly, I would just ask that if you're interested in asking a question over the microphone to click on the raise hand icon up at the very top of the screen. Um, and then we can get to you. I saw that during the presentation, uh, somebody raised their hand. And so, uh, Daniel Schmidt, if you had a question, you're welcome to uh, ask it. Or um, we can, uh, otherwise, we will just move this on. I'm going to mute all of the microphones right now. And then, again, if you would like to ask a question, you can come off of mute. And or you can just write your question in the uh, chat box down below. So I will stop. So uh, Michelle, you can uh, uh, guide the. Okay. Well. Uh, okay. So, but I, I was just wondering, Robert, if before maybe both presenters might have some comments uh, to add to the presentation of their of their of their colleague as maybe Alice may want to comment about uh, Marion's presentation, and maybe Marion may, may want to comment on to add on Alice's presentation. Is that a good way to proceed? I can just add that um, I think that what uh, the study that um, uh, Marion shared in her experience, uh, also it, it also um, it complements what I was saying, I think, and gives it another clear example of how uh, indigenous people are uh, are using uh, traditional knowledge uh, to guide them in their work. And it's great that the museum that they're working with and other staff they're working with are uh, allowing that, making room for that. So I, I appreciate your work. Thank you so much, Shelley. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a very good comment. Thank you so much, Alice, for So Marion? Yeah, I just would like to, to thank Alice also for a presentation. It was very impressive to take just after you as your presentation was so really powerful and uh, gave us very interesting uh, tools to, to rethink and to reframe our ethics in, uh, in museums in the USA, but also in other contexts. So thank you, Alice, again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're you're perfectly right. Okay, so do we have some questions? Susie or Robert, could you uh, maybe help us on that? <laughs> There, yeah, there was a, there was a raised hand uh, back during the presentation. Um, if if, uh, if that person still has a question, we'd be happy to hear from it. I think is it Maria Helena who has her microphone on. Um, does she want to ask a question? No, anyone? Okay, if no one has any questions, I think I think we'll have a long break for lunch.
before the third panel. So uh, thank you so much, Alice, Marion, and Michelle. Thank you for this wonderful panel and taking the time to prepare these very um, thoughtfully researched presentations. Rod? That sounds great. So I'm going to stop the recording here. Um, we will leave the chat box open during the uh, lunch. Uh, we've got an hour. We'll be, we're going to come back at 1 o'clock uh, Eastern U.S. time for... Can, can I just... Uh, yes. Robert, can I just say last word? I think that was uh, this morning as yesterday, though. It was really, really interesting, and I, I really hope that this presentation that were recorded will be diffused as, as much as possible, because, of course, it's not all colleagues who were able to attend, but it seems to me that the thoughts that, they were, that were shared by the presenters this morning and also yesterday really deserve to be diffused, to be diffused and to continue. And I think that it's really, uh, well, what I, what I saw and what I listened to, it's a really, very, very, very interesting seminar. So really, congratulations yes, again. Yes, thank you, and thank you to everybody that's participated. Um, we will, I, like we said, we are recording these, and yes, we will distribute the recordings of this as far and wide as we can uh, through the uh, symposium website and through various social media, and I'm sure Susie will post it through ICAFOM. So we will try to get this out to as many people as, it can, as can access it because there's a lot of great information here. So, yes, thank you all. Um, and like I said, we will sign off for – well, we won't sign off. The, the link will still be open, but I'm going to stop the recording. I'll open the chat, and we will start our next panel at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. And so thank you all for coming, and we will see you again in an hour. See you later. Bye.